Yeah. Just to kind of echo what Brent was talking about, our Next Steps class is today, again, immediately following this service. And uh, you'll get to know who we are, what we're doing, and how you can be a part. So if, uh, if you're new, you've been kicking the tires a little bit, that is a great time for you. After service, this is what's going to happen. If you'll exit out of these doors, take a left, uh, and then hang a right after that. Not the men's bathroom after that. <laughs> we don't have our Next Steps class in the men's bathroom. That'd be weird. That'd be weird. Most people don't talk in the bathroom. Some do. Sometimes I try to have a little conversation and, I mean, you know, come on. Like, you're just right there. You got about, I don't know, 45 seconds or so. If you're a guy, just say, hey, man, how's it going? And I don't know why typically people don't, they just kind of, it's an awkward moment. <laughs> Is that not what you're supposed to do? No. <laughs> Last night, uh, actually, we got, we got surprised with some tickets. We got to the LSU game last night. And uh, I told my wife on the way there, I was like, either, either this game, if we win, I might actually watch every game this season. If we lose, forget about it. You know what I'm saying? But uh, we won. We won. How many uh, Bulldog fans we got in here? Wow, okay. Okay. It's, uh, you're doing okay today? Doing okay? Me and my wife, we, uh, we left at the beginning of the fourth quarter because we had to get back, you know, we wanted to beat the traffic. And I'm not kidding you. I, like, God's my witness. We walked out of, like, just not, not the whole stadium. I'm talking like we took four steps down the little ramp. Immediately, MSU muffs the punt. He dropped the punt, in case you don't know what that means. Uh, dropped the punt. So we run back in into the fourth quarter. We leave. They scored 21 points in the fourth quarter. I'm just saying, maybe we shouldn't go back to another game this season, <laughs> right? No, it was fun, but uh, what, my point in that was, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what the point of that was. It had to do with the bathroom. I'll just keep moving. I'll just keep moving. Don't want to waste any time with that. So, uh, but uh, <laughs> look, in case it's your first time here, my name is Jordan. Uh, I'm the senior pastor here, and we are one church, four locations uh, here in Gulfport, Wiggins, Ocean Springs, and Long Beach. So we're honored that you're here with us. We hope that you feel welcome. We hope that you... Uh, you might want to come back as well. So uh, uh, we are also wrapping up a series. It's called Loving Logic. This is week number seven. And uh, uh, it's, it's been a good series. Come on, how many of y'all seriously have learned something, have gotten some help over the last few weeks? Just a few of you? Good. Good. We, uh, we've been, we, you know, as a teaching team, we've been working tirelessly to, uh, to really deliver these messages in a in a, in a good way, as much as you can in the time that we have on a Sunday morning. Um, you know, we, we've gone a little bit longer in these sermons, as you have all experienced, especially, come on, y'all, last week. It was long. We're not going to go that long today, okay? But, yeah, uh, you know, some of these subjects are so big. They really are, and they need a certain amount of time, and because uh, and they, they matter. They matter to us as a church. And, uh, and, and, and for our kids and for our future, you know? And, and what this series is about, it, it's about exposing a, um, uh, what we call or what's called progressive Christianity. And that we're progressive, it sounds good in some ways. It's always good to progress. We always wanna be progressing in life. But, um, but sometimes that word, depending on what it's attached to, is not that good of a thing. Where we wanna progress in some ways, we don't wanna progress in, in every way. Uh, because sometimes what happens is people progress past the, uh, the you know, what is the, the, the proper tenets of our faith. And what happens is people have been progressing in Christianity and adding things to Christianity. And now we're in a society where if you say that you're Christian, that can mean a lot of different things. And uh, it's one thing that, that to, for someone to claim Christianity outside of the church and it be something that is uh, not really Christianity. It's another thing for people in the church Okay, for those churches to begin to claim that they are Christians whenever everything that they believe and everything that they teach is contrary to what Jesus taught. Uh, we were last night, obviously we were walking on campus at LSU, and they had this you know, strip of like chapels and all the different denominations there. And, and uh, there was one, one church there that they had a lot of paraphernalia outside that you could tell they were, uh, they were definitely a progressive church. You know, uh, and, and the thing about that is, is that you're going to begin to see that more and more and more in our society. If you drive to any metro area, you'll see churches putting things out there that is, uh, that's progressive. And, um, and again, we don't, 
like, I think the church should be known for more what it's for rather than what it's against. I, I really do believe that. But at times, we must be very clear on what we're not for, okay? <laughs> like, we do have to be clear about that. So this is, this is kind of our attempt at being very clear at what the world is bringing into the church. And uh, it's kind of like a Trojan horse, all right? It's, it's kind of coming in. And, and Christians are adopting these beliefs, and then entire churches are being changed. Uh, and, and so this is our goal in, uh, in this message, is to kind of expose that. So Colossians 2.8 has been our main scripture that we've gone with every single week. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Not according to what... Christ came and taught what he gave us. And so that's what we are seeking to do. Our goal is to be informed and equipped to hold fast to and declare biblical truth in a loving, in a loving and uh, a logical way. All right, these are our goals in, as a church, not just to know what we believe in a way and deliver it in a harsh way, but to be able to deliver it in a loving way. So progressive Christianity, again, it's a, a spectrum not every person that, that claims to be a progressive Christian uh, is necessarily outside of the scope of historic Christianity, okay? But many are progressing past that point again into, honestly, into heresy. And that's another big word that we don't throw around a whole lot because I don't think that you should throw around words like that a lot. I think you should be specific and, and given to things that are actually heresy, not some thoughts that might be a little bit out of the norm or non-traditional. Y'all with me on that? So we don't, we don't throw around that, that, that thought too much. But we've also, and I'm doing a little recap because I want everybody to kind of know where we're at right now. Uh, we've been uh, uh, talking about 10 progressive Christian statements that a man named Philip Gully uh, wrote about in his book, If the Church Were Christian. He's a progressive Christian thought leader. Uh, this was written in like 2009. And uh, he made these statements that really summarize the thoughts behind progressive Christianity. So we've been going through these pretty much one at a time and, uh, and talking about where there's truth, because there is truth in some of the statements, but where there's an overreaction or, or, or an overemphasis in an area that actually leads to uh, error. And so, uh, so we've talked about these statements. So the statement that we're dealing with today is the result of all the other statements we've discussed, all right? So if you haven't been here, I'm going to summarize all the other weeks, and then we're going to get into what we're talking about today. All the other statements that we've discussed, okay? If you've deconstructed old restrictive ideas, okay, old restrictive ideas, if you downplay Jesus and his divinity... If you believe that we are all good, inherently good, and original goodness, and that the truth is subjective, right? It's not objective, but it's, it's subjective. If you believe we don't need church leadership because it's all built on power and manipulation. If you believe that sexual identity is the ultimate form of expression, then you end up dealing with whether or not there is a consequence for any actions or beliefs at all. If you remove consequences, you remove all accountability for those actions, okay? And so if we disagree with all of these things in all these other areas, then what's to say that we won't also disagree concerning eternity, the afterlife? And that's what we're talking about today, the logic of eternity. So the last progressive statement that we're going to deal with in this series is this, that life in this world is more important than the afterlife. This is the, this is the statement that's made. This is a, a thought that's permeating our culture, which is life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Gully, he says that the church has been too preoccupied with and also overemphasizes the afterlife. He also says that, the for, that fortunes are spent saving people from the imaginary dangers of imaginary places. How many of y'all have ever heard anything kind of down this route, right? Like the imaginary, the, the afterlife, it's kind of like, oh, we're not sure if it's a thing. You know, is it just chemicals going on in people's heads when they die? Like what's going on there? And, and that's the logical conclusion of progressive Christianity is believing that there, there isn't a heaven or hell and, uh, or at the least people don't end up there forever. This is just the logical conclusion. This is also what Peter Kreeft talks about in his book, uh, Handbook of Christian Apologetics. He says this, uh, it's not on the screen, but 
I wanted to read it to you. Of all the doctrines of Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to believe, and the first to be abandoned. The critics' case against it seems very strong, and the believer's duty to believe it seems unbearable. This is the final topic. This is the big topic. This is where everything eventually leads to. If you're having a conversation with someone who thinks these thoughts, eventually you get to this conversation, what happens after life? Is there anything after life? If so, what is it like? Is it punishment? Is it restorative? Is it a reward system? Is it, you know, is it, uh, is it nothing at all? How many of you have heard, you know, religion is an opiate for the masses? Right? There's this, this mindset that people just have these ideas in place, heaven and hell, to kind of you know, make people feel like they have hope in this life, potentially, and to kind of keep the peace and to kind of stay moral. And heaven is, I mean, hell is kind of to keep people in fear away from those really bad things in society. But all that's really fake. It's all about what we see here and now. Progressive Christians a lot of times would say that we shouldn't worry ourselves with what happens after death because no one really knows if it's real anyway. They'd also say that our problem isn't sin, like we talked about a few weeks ago. It's not sin. It's, it's suffering. It's war. It's poverty and disease. And that these things are hell right now. So hell's not a thing in the future. Hell is where we live right now. So our purpose is to fix those and create heaven here on earth right now. So if you don't believe in the afterlife, then all you have is what's right here in front of you. And so hell becomes what we see in front of us, suffering and pain. And heaven becomes, I don't know, LSU games when they win, right? <laughs> because what else is there? I mean, like honestly, if there's nothing post-life, then dude, let's just, let's just live and let live and have a good time, man. Come on. Okay. I'm glad we're all on the same page about that. But we can't fix those terrible realities by ignoring what's caused those realities and also the afterlife as a whole. So what's funny is, you know, it's like, hey, let's, let's, sin's not a real thing, okay? But yet we see the effects of sin all around us. So let's ignore that and just try to fix these things by not actually fixing the main thing, and then it'll all get better. It's never happened in, in history, okay? We, we don't have the ability to do that as people. And so many people, though, can't bear the thought of the thought of hell because it doesn't feel good. Hell doesn't feel good to think about it. Heaven does, but not hell. And so what happens is because it doesn't feel good, they question whether or not it exists or deny it altogether. And that's logical in regards to our emotions. That makes sense that we would do that. But it's not logical into, uh, uh, regarding whether it's true or not. Because popular to you know, to public opinion, your truth, your, your feelings don't determine what is true. All right? For some of us, we need, to, we need to kind of swallow that right now, okay? Just because something feels right or wrong doesn't mean it's right or wrong. We need another standard. We need another plumb line to make sure that that's actually, uh, whether that's true or not. So hell is a difficult topic for people to accept as a reality for, for a few different reasons. And there's basically three different categories of belief about hell, so if you actually do believe that there's an afterlife and we begin to talk about heaven and hell, most people deal with, again, they deal with the believing in hell. Most people agree that heaven exists or they like to believe that it exists. But man, when we really dig into hell, even in the church, it sort of splits into three different categories. And you have people who, are, uh, who believe in eternal conscious punishment which is kind of more the historic, traditional way of, of regarding hell. Then you have uh, annihilationism, which also, there, there's a lot of people throughout history who have believed in annihilationism, which is basically a, uh, either right when you die, you know, if you, if, you, uh, if you were to go to hell, that you would immediately burn up in one fail swoop, it's done, or, um, or after a certain amount of time, you might pay penance kind of where purgatory is at to a certain extent, just to, for some of us who might be thinking that way, uh, kind of down that, you know, you, you pay what you need to pay and then you're redeemed out of that. Um, that's not really annihilationism 100%, but, but there's cousins, okay? There's cousins in all of these conversations. But when you get to universalism, that's kind of more where a lot of people think of, which is either everybody is right with God, so there is no hell, people never go there, or again, after a certain amount of time, you may, uh, I guess, graduate out of hell. And so anyway, there's a whole lot of different, um, uh, there's, a, there's a big spectrum to this. And I guess I should say this before we really dig deep. 
just like every subject we've covered, uh, we try to wrap things up in about a half an hour to an hour to an hour and 10. And um, there's literally been debates and conversations and books written about these things for hundreds and some, some things thousands of years. So there's literally no way that we are going to be able to cover everything. And that's why uh, I wanna give you a couple of resources before I really get into the meat of the message kind of like I did last week in case some of you kind of say, I don't want to hear this anymore. Um, number one would be Erasing Hell. Uh, it was, was co-wrote by uh, Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. Uh, and it, it, that book was actually a response to Rob Bell's uh, Love Wins years and years ago. Some of y'all might remember those books that were written. Uh, Progressive Christianity was really starting to kind of become a main thing. Rob Bell was one of those leaders in our, in our day and age. They wrote a book in rebuttal to uh, to love wins. A lot of the things that we're going to talk about and skip a rock over, you could read a lot more in that book. But also, um, Norman Geisler, uh, he wrote a, uh, he has the systematic theology. Uh, and, there, and in his one volume, Systematic Theology, he covers a lot in regards to objections to the afterlife or hell and kind of a response to all those objections. And if you'd really like to go even deeper, you can get his four volume Systematic Theology where he goes even deeper. Um, anyway, but Norman Geisler is a great read. If, uh, and the reason I say that is because there's no way that all of us are going to see eye to eye on this today, especially people watching online. You know, there's just a big spectrum of people. And, uh, and so, you know, at some point, you can't just take my word for it. If you want to go deeper, there's two resources. There's a lot more, but you can go about as deep as you can swim, which is those two things alone, okay? But here's a few main questions people have about hell. Um, the first thing is this. This is the first question a lot of people ask. Haven't we misinterpreted the word hell in the Bible? Haven't we just misinterpreted hell all together? Today I want to show you a TikTok by our buddy uh, Derek that we showed his Instagram of a few weeks ago. Because the things that he says is sort of what you're going to hear uh, if you haven't heard it already. So let's go ahead and show this, this TikTok. I'm going to be brutally honest with you, and it may ruffle some people's feathers. Hell is not... Let me finish that for you. Hell is not real. No, not in the way that you think. There's four words that have been translated to our English word hell. Gehenna, Tartarus, Sheol, and Hades. What you need to know from all of those, and I have a video that breaks down a little bit more, so feel free to look at it. They don't have anything to do with a literal eternal torment. When you challenge people with this, you get a lot of pushback and anger. It's because we've obfuscated this view of God as angry and judgmental, and we have justified our own hatred and exclusion. When you tear down their arguments, they have nothing left to stand on except their own hate. So these are the types of things that uh, we're going to continue to be exposed to. These types of things, okay, if you believe in hell, it's obviously just because you hate people. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the only conclusion, which that mindset's applied to what we talked about last week with sexuality. If you disagree or you don't affirm or what you believe has some sort of, it applies pressure to someone that that is not loving. Therefore, you must just hate them. It's a very, you know, it's either this or that. And um, now, I, you know, just so you guys know, like, I have nothing personally against people like, like, like Derek, you know. We've kind of gone back and forth on TikTok a little bit. Uh, I have nothing against people like that. It's just that we believe very differently. But the results, the repercussions of believing differently, you know, you know Pascal's wager, right? It's like, you know, if, if all this ends, I don't think it's a great wager, by the way. I don't, I don't apply this to a lot of things, but it, it, there is something to this. If someone, you know, teaches something or believes something and you play that out, what's the conclusion of that? versus the other. And so if someone does not believe in hell and doesn't believe in Jesus, the obvious conclusion of that is that um, uh, if, if hell's not real, then it's no big, no big deal, right? But if hell is real, right, and, and, and all the things that we're talking about are real, then the logical conclusion of a person that would, that would disagree would be uh, very negative, right? And we'll get into that here in a second. And so we have all these ideas. We have all these people saying all these different things. Well, uh, some of you might have never heard somebody say that, that the word hell is actually not in the Bible. Some of you may have never heard the things that he just said at all. And if you were to go a step deeper and go to his page and go listen to his TikToks, your, your mind might be even more surprised and blown 
Well, here's the deal. It's true. The word hell isn't in any of the original manuscripts. The word hell that we use today, it wasn't. And um, the deal is, though, that the word that we know as hell wasn't used at all until about the 13th century. And this is the same argument that we talked about last week with homosexuality, where it's like where the word homosexual was not in, and I'm sorry if I just threw that word out there for some of you who weren't here last week. You're like, oh, my gosh, we're just going to throw that out there really quick, aren't we? You need to go back to last week and listen to, to, the, uh, to the message. But we talked about how people talk about how these things are not in the Bible. Well, that word, yes, that word was not in the Bible at that time because that word didn't exist. And over time, a word was created in the 1800s that then was applied in the 1940s to, to the translations that we have today. Some people didn't do a good job in other things that were translated. And what happens is as, as we begin to look at translations and we see these words that kind of are like not exactly right, what happens is people begin to assume that because some of those, those things are um, nuanced, that therefore it removes all of the belief around it altogether and we can't trust it. And that's why we're having conversations like this. Because... Uh, for every rebuttal against the word of God and to all these words, there are good reasons for why they are there. So this whole idea that the, because the word hell doesn't exist in the Bible like we have it today, that it is all a farce is not true. Just like sexual immorality. So we're going to kind of parse that here in just a moment. This argument doesn't negate the Bible's description of the afterlife. So here's some of the words that he talks about Gehenna. And again, we're not going to go too deep in these words. You guys could grab a hold of these resources that I mentioned earlier and, and go deeper. But Gehenna was a valley outside of Jerusalem, and it was used figuratively as a name or, um, for the place or state of everlasting punishment. Jesus, whenever he talks about hell, uses this word Gehenna. And this is a very controversial word. Um, people who have more of a progressive, progressive Christian stance will say that this word was simp Jesus was simply talking about a valley. He wasn't talking about eternal punishment, but that does not flesh out with, uh, with all of the things that you can go and read about concerning that word. What's interesting is sometimes uh, progressive Christians are, uh, <laughs> was that Adele? We got Adele? <laughs> I think Adele just made an appearance with us today. <laughs> But anyway, so, uh, so what's interesting is that when we talk about figurative language in the Bible and what is a metaphor or an alleg uh, alleg uh, you know, allegorical uh, uh, verse or, or book, um, some people will claim one thing to be an allegory but not another. So Jesus using Gehenna was a metaphor for punishment and then others will say, no, he was simply talking about the valley. You know, where, where there was human sacrifice and where there was this, you know, historical mindset surrounding this, this area. It was about this area. It wasn't, you know, a metaphor for eternal punishment. But then they'll flip that the other way when talking about another subject and say that that, that is allegory, not this. So th there's a debate on and on and on about these things. But we see that when Jesus talks about these things, it's, a, it's figurative language for eternal or everlasting punishment. Sheol and Hades, you guys have probably heard Hades, but these two words, it's the Hebrew and Greek words that really mean the same thing. It's the realm of the dead. It's the grave. It's death. And so especially when you're reading the Old Testament, you'll see these words sometimes uh, spoken about as hell, but these are the actual words that are used, okay? It's a place for the departed souls. And then there's Tartarus, which is the only place that you'll find this word mentioned is in 2 Peter. And actually, uh, this Tartarus is a word that was used to describe uh, a mythological pit where, uh, where the really, really wicked, you know, evil powers were thrown. And so Peter borrows this language from the understanding of that time that he was in. And, uh, and so anyway, again, I know I'm like skipping rocks over some things. You're like, wait, go deeper into that. Go get the books that I was talking about, please. Um, but what happens is as you begin to look at these words, some people say, well, hell's not even real. Like, what, what? And it feels like it destabilizes what we believe. But the Bible also describes hell as a place having worms, it's a fire, it's darkness, it's a pit, a sulfury place. People are in chains there uh, where there's conscious torment, anguish, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. And so there's a whole lot of descriptive words used to describe this place we call hell that, again, this word was really adopted in about the you know, 1200s or so. And we begin to apply this word to all of these ideas. 
And some people think that's problematic, and I'm like, well, don't we use words to describe a lot of things a lot of times? Such as it's raining cats and dogs. Like, there's nobody who actually thinks that cats and dogs are falling out of the sky. Of course, we, we know that. But whenever we're reading the Bible, what things are cats and dogs and what things are real? And we could take a lot of time, and we hope to, in the future, take some time and talk about biblical interpretation, how to properly approach Scripture, and how to, there's different types of books that, that, that describe different types of things. And sometimes, you know, what happens, honestly, guys, it's what happens in the book of Revelation. When people read Revelation a lot, they, they begin to literally apply everything they read and say that's, that there's an actual dragon that's going to, like, come out. And... It's, those things represent something. And so you get into biblical interpretation, and some people get a little freaked out. They're like, it's above my, it's above my head. I just want to keep it very simple. But I'm telling you guys, in this day and age, you're not going to be able to keep everything very, very simple. You need to know what you believe. If our eternity is based on this, I think that we should come up against these hard questions and hard conversations and actually say, what, does, what did Jesus actually mean by that? Right? Are y'all with me on that? It's very important. So the fact that these words may have been symbolic doesn't undo traditional church beliefs surrounding the reality of what we call hell. Okay, so we use this word hell to describe eternal like punishment in the afterlife. That's kind of just to summarize it easily. But there's other biblical biblical descriptions of hell that are also very controversial. One is the word eternal. Um, it comes from this word, uh, Ieno, um, Ionios, and there are different and complicated approaches to what this word means, but we believe that Jesus describes hell as meaning everlasting, and we could spend a lot of time talking about uh, this word because this is the crux of the matter. This is the word. How you interpret this word determines how you will uh, see hell as either everlasting, like ongoing, or just an age, or just a, like a, a certain period of time. And based upon how people interpret this word is where you find a lot of people deviate into uh, those three groups that I was talking about. You know, universalism, annihilationism, or eternal conscious punishment. Uh, but Jesus says here in 25, Matthew 25, verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. And again, some people interpret this differently. Is Jesus talking about just a certain period of time, or is he talking about what we would consider to be eternity? Okay? This is one, that's one important word. The next word is conscious. Some would say that if hell exists, people aren't conscious. But Jesus tells a story, and some believe that this isn't a true story, but it's a parable. Okay? You kind of go back and forth on this one. Again, you'll, you'll begin to see, just like Robert Kreese said, as you begin to really dig deep into this, you find a lot of discrepancy. You find a lot of difficulty. For some of you, you're like, why are you talking about this? Because it feels like it's destabilizing. We have got to, we got to get out, we got to get outside of our bubble, y'all. We've got to study the word. We've got to know what we believe about these things. Because what happens is all of a sudden we're in a conversation with someone and they bring up something. And we have no clue. We've never heard it. So yeah, we're kind of exposing you guys to some ideas. What about consciousness? Well, Jesus tells this parable, right, this story, and in it he describes a man who goes to Hades and uh, is in a conscious state. He knows himself. He knows his surroundings. He knows his, his, his life that he just lived. He is aware. Jesus describes whatever's on the other side as a conscious place, okay? I don't believe he would have described it as, an, as a conscious place if it wasn't a conscious place place. But that's another, that's another big word, is hell conscious or not. And the next word is this, punishment. Punishment for the wicked. Some people believe hell is actually a restorative place where we are refined and renewed. But this just isn't what Jesus or other apostles teach. We don't see this with the other authors in the Bible, that it's a restorative place. This is where universalism really comes into play. Some people believe, again, that you go to hell for a certain period of time and that you are then released from that place and that all people ultimately are reconciled with God. 
Well, Norman Geisler talks about how this life is actually the place of refinement and renewal, the the opportunity for repentance, not in the afterlife. The same thing that we just talked about, y'all. If you believe that heaven and hell are on this earth, then some of the things that happen in heaven and hell after, you'll, you'll, you'll pull into this life and vice versa. So this world right now that we live in, this is the time that God is extending his grace and his mercy to each and every one of us to be renewed, to, be, to, to choose to follow him, right? And some people say, okay, it's not in this life, it's in the next. We just don't see that. We don't see that in scripture. Matthew 25, 46, and these, the unrighteous ones, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will uh, go into eternal life. And this punishment that we're talking about is reserved for those people who reject Jesus in this life, who reject his grace, who reject his mercy, who reject the gospel. So there may be some ambiguity and interpretive hurdles about hell, but we believe that the Bible teaches that there is eternal punishment for the wicked and eternal life for the righteous. Another question that people have is, isn't hell overkill? Right? You guys ever think that? I've thought that a lot. Like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Right? There's a lot of really good people. And for these good people to imagine them going to a place like this whenever they never murdered anybody. Come on, y'all. They never abused anybody. They didn't do all those bad things. So to think that those types of people in that category would go to a place of eternal anguish and punishment it, right? Come on. It doesn't feel like it fits the crime. Now, we, we talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago, but it, it is overkill if we, if we underestimate sin. Y'all remember we talked about the misdemeanor mindset surrounding sin. Many of us, we, we don't feel like sin is actually that big of a deal. We don't feel like sin is, is that bad. And, and, you know, even if it's just me, sin just personal sin, if my sin doesn't affect other people, then it's really not that bad. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's why that little moment that we said about original goodness rather than original sin, someone being born good versus born in sin, is a big delineating factor that eventually ends up right here at this moment where you can't imagine hell being fitting the crime, if you will, okay, because we're really not that bad. We underestimate sin. We have a misdemeanor mindset. We talked a few weeks ago about if, you know, if, you're going, if you're going 45 and a 30 and the police officer pulls you over and he gives you a ticket and you're just like, hey, come on, man. Go get the real criminals. You know what I'm saying? The drug dealers and the murderers. Go get those, those people. Well, no, technically speaking, you, you broke the law, right? And we do that same thing with Jesus. We're like, you know, surely Jesus will be okay with those, you know, these bad things and and I'll just kind of wing it. You know, maybe I'll get the ticket fixed. Right? It's also easiest for us to think that in our Western culture, you know, we're, we're sipping on our lattes and watching Netflix. And we see sin from our vantage point. We see sin from our Western context. And for a lot of us, we're very disconnected from, from wickedness. For us, it's hard to see someone that's seemingly good go to hell, but we don't see the other side of sin either. Imagine being in a tribe in Africa and people come in and ransack your village. They take your spouse, murder them, sell your kids into sex slavery, right? Horrible things happen and there's nothing that you can do about it. I can tell you this, that person can only sleep well if they know that eventually that wickedness will be punished. But again, we're just chilling in America, man. Things seem so good. But if you've been taken advantage of, for you to know that that wickedness, even though they may get away with it in this lifetime, that you know that eventually God has the last word, has the final word, and that wickedness, that evil will be punished, you actually find great joy in that. Not against the person, Right, But just knowing that, that, come on, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so a lot of times we get 
totally absorbed into our society. We can't see the, the devastating effects of sin. That's why people also struggle with God being so, um, what they would consider to be mean and like a dictator in the Old Testament. Like how could he, how could, how could he commit genocide and all these things? And, and the bottom line is that many times we don't understand what was going on before that. We also don't, don't understand how many times Jesus extended, God extended his grace to those people through prophets and other people that would visit those areas and preach God, the faithfulness of God, and say, repent, and they would not. These are hard things, but these are the reality of humanity and the reality of sin. And so... It would be unjust if God was to let this wickedness go unpunished. So with that mindset, let's answer the next question that a lot of people ask. How could a loving God punish people in hell? A few, a few minutes ago, you might have said, yeah, that seems so wrong. But then all of a sudden, you have this other thought that sort of combats that thinking. And then your response now might be, if God doesn't punish evil, he isn't even loving we spent a lot of time opening this up whenever we talked about atonement. We talked about God's wrath. When people hear wrath, they hear anger. They hear, you know, uncontrolled anger. And, and that's not what pure wrath is. See, God is holy. He is just. And even his wrath is pure and just. We can't take the, the mindset of human wrath and overlay that onto God. That humanizes God and elevates our thinking to his. It's humanism. It's idolatry. So, how could a loving God punish people in hell? One thing I want to say that I think is really going to be a thought for some of you today is that instead of really picturing God like almost laughing while he sends people to hell, cast them into hell, almost like this deviant, you know, horrible, like, you know, in movies you watch these guys that are like in the shadows, you know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> yes. Like, people picture God like that, like, I've been waiting to destroy you. You know, I'm serious. That's how they read the Bible. Instead of asking the question from that angle, you, you have to kind of switch your understanding to more of a biblical understanding, and it's this. God doesn't choose to punish people in hell in this way. People choose they choose where they go by rejecting the authority, the love, the grace, the mercy of God. The Bible supports this mindset. This, this, this is how you can see God as loving. God has given us free will to choose the Bible's very clear that the majority of people will choose the wide way and few will choose the narrow way. And this reality right here is so hard for a lot of people. It feels exclusive, right? It feels, uh, it, it, it feels like a rejection of people. But whenever you realize that if God did not give people the choice to choose to worship him, that it would not be true worship. It would be forced worship. Unless you could see that in the word, unless you read the word from that interpretive lens, then this whole thing gets flipped around. And yes, you will begin to see God as that shadowy fig figure who is sending people to hell in an unloving, wrathful, vengeance type of way. But that's not his character. It never has been even in the Old Testament. God has always been full of grace and mercy and love. This question really has to do with how you view God's nature or his attributes. The most popular attribute that we know of is that God is love, right? Come on, everybody knows that scripture. People that are not Christians know that and they, they quote that, God is love and, he, and yes, he is. First John 4 shows us what that, that love really looks like, though. It says that, that God's love is shown to us by Christ receiving, Christ receiving the full penalty of our sin and satisfying God's wrath on the cross. That's what 1 John 4 talks about, right? D.A. Carson puts it like this. He says, do you wish to see God's love? Look at the cross. 
Do you wish to see God's wrath? Look at the cross. You, 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 for some of you, I, I know you're struggling with this right here. This, this is difficult. And before we really move on, I, I wanna implore you, I wanna, I wanna challenge you to begin to seek the face of God for revelation from him and his word by the Holy Spirit to see a statement like this and not cringe and not feel like that's just incompatible. There is a both and to so many things in the Christian faith. It's not just this or just that. It's not just grace or truth, it's grace and truth. It's not just God's wrath or his mercy, it's his wrath and his mercy. These things are, are, are even sometimes difficult to understand. The Bible talks about that. There's a lot of spiritual things that are not understandable just in the human mind alone. It comes through revelation. So honestly, I think about what I'm talking about with you a lot. Needing a revelation from God, not from me. Not, like there's not a way for me to eloquently put words together and, and stack them just right for, for people to like be, you know, just drawn into that. God has to reveal things to you and we must seek that. And, and so for some of you, this whole series has felt very difficult because of this right here. How is God loving with all of these things in play? And I just want to let you know that I've been there. <laughs> I've been there. I'm going to share a story in a second, you know, a personal story kind of a, about some of these things. This is not, these things are not easy for me to even just like throw out there like flippantly. These are hard truths, but it's true and it's biblical. If you want more kind of surrounding this, this subject again, I, I would encourage you to go back a few weeks and, and watch our, uh, our, our sermon on the logic of sin. We talk about sin and atonement, and, and we really dig deeper into this. But this is how some people, they, they ask that question, how could God, how could a loving God punish people in hell? And some of these things are difficult, but we must, again, we must align what we believe with what the word of God says. So in summary, what do we, what do we believe about eternity? Well, the first thing I want to say is this, that we believe hell to be a place of eternal conscious punishment for everyone who rejects Christ. This is more of the historic approach uh, to, to hell and understanding hell and what it is. And there's many people who are having different ideas and different angles about this statement right here. And I don't want to, um, how can I say this? I don't want to condescend people who have a different view than this. Because there is a lot of conversation and there are scriptures and there's a lot of people who have said a lot of things about this, for, for, again, for centuries. But as you begin to take steps away from this, it, con it continues, it progresses, right? And so holding fast to a statement like that, uh, again, like Robert Kreef said earlier, it's one of the first things to be abandoned in, in someone's faith, that hell is, ex is as extensive and then eventually does it exist at all? And so that's what we believe. And, and this is hard and, and this is where, I, this is hard because um, a lot of us in this room, we know people who have passed and we don't know, if we're a Christian, we don't know where they're at right now. We don't know where they're at. And uh, for me, this, this year, I've been, um, I've been, confronted with this reality more than I have. I'm 37 years old, and it wasn't until this year that I had two people that I was very, very, very close to pass away. And uh, I, knew, I knew this was gonna be a tough moment. Um, this year, a, a man named Paul Alonzo, many of y'all know Paul, he, uh, he was the worship pastor here for many years. So I was, I was basically five years old, and he came here and uh, was a worship pastor until I was 18. And I was raised up, like, you know, as far as learning to play guitar and drums and all this kind of stuff. He was kind of the first, he was the first person to help me understand these things. And um, uh, just a great guy. And he had 
got pancreatic cancer and died about, it's been about four months ago, four or five months ago. And, uh, but we go to his funeral and his funeral was beautiful and it was so much hope because we knew Paul and we know where he's at right now. And the Bible talks about that. There, there's, there's great hope attached to the Christian faith in regards to to heaven and knowing where we go. But the deal is, is this, is that in the same way that what we believe about heaven and hell provides great hope to some, it provides great grief for others. It compounds the grief. And there was another guy that um, over the last two years, me and a couple of friends, we got really, really close to. Um, And he grew up around church, but um, it was never like real to him, and um, he was struggling, you know, to like know certain things, and so anyway, we just started getting together on the back porch, me and a few guys, and just, we just started literally, I was like, man, have you ever even like actually read the Bible? Because all the conversations were, it was about all the, even some of the questions that we're talking about, it's all these questions, cultural questions, but it's like we'd mentioned the Bible, and there was no connection to the Bible, and I was like, man, if we don't, if you don't know what the Word of God says about these things, then all you're taking is my opinion, and that's not going to take you very far. I was like, let's just start reading the Bible, and so we did that. We started reading the Bible and just sharing the gospel, just, just raw, just sharing the gospel with this guy. And, uh, man, it was sweet. Uh, it, was, it was good for me. You know, guys, sometimes it's good just to sit with somebody and read the Bible with somebody who is, uh, they don't know very much. It's a, it's a sweet place. And uh, anyway, we, we come over to the house and hang out, and... Um, I, I'm never going to be a person who 100% knows and says or declares where somebody is, like if they're in he- hell. I'm never going to do that because I have no idea. You know what I'm saying? I have no idea b- based upon that person, man, wh- where they were at with God and, and exactly what happened moments before and all that. I don't really, I don't go there and I don't, I don't say those types of things, um, you know, but, but, there, but there is a confession of faith, right? And so it, it's, it's easier when you hear someone say, <laughs> and they know, they know where they're at with God versus whenever you never have that moment with somebody that you've been uh, witnessing to. And um, um, long story short, about three months ago or so, he passed away in an uh, automobile accident. Um, and uh, um, so uh, I began, you know, it was, it was tough because for me, I'm, I, again, it's kind of strange. I'm 37, and, and I'm just being very transparent today with you guys about this. Um, I begin to ask some questions that I've never asked before in my life. I begin to struggle with uh, not knowing where somebody, y'all, I grew up in church, man, Christian family. There's just some things that, um, you know, some of y'all have dealt with when you were 10 years old that I didn't until I was 37, and um, and so um, I began to pray prayers that I didn't even really know if I believed in. You know, maybe you've been there where you, you pray for somebody after they've passed because you just feel like there's nothing else you can do, right? You, you pray for them. And, and I know for some of you, you're like, yep. And, uh, you know, whenever you begin to talk about hell, and as I've studied this, um, I'm not just studying some theological thing. I'm not, this message for me isn't... Um, trying to build an apologetic approach to heaven and hell so that way we just kind of can stand. For me, this is very, very personal because the things I'm preaching might be a reality for somebody that I was very close to. And you don't want that to be the case. So I think some people reject the notion of what we're talking about today and to reject a question or a statement like this, not because they don't agree with how somebody interpreted it 40 years ago or how they interpreted it 400 years ago. It's not about that. It's, it hurts. It's painful. And there's a lot of things in Christianity and the reality of humanity and sin that are, that are just hard. And what we want is we want closure. I want closure, y'all. I, I want to know. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and so um, I'm not being dramatic about this and trying to, like, stir emotions about this, but this is the reality of where, uh, where a lot of us find ourselves. 
And some of y'all have been there for decades. And, um, and I don't want to bring up stuff like this insensitively. But at the same time, um, it's, just, it's, it's difficult. And it's why John 3, in one sense, provides so much hope, but also provides so much angst in us. And this is also why this subject should create so much urgency in our hearts. John 3, 36. A lot of people know John 3, John 3, 16. But the whole chapter, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And verse 36, he says this. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. It's very... You'll feel that tension. It's a both and at the same time. There's such hope, but there's also such um, such angst. A few scriptures before that, though, Jesus says this in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. People stop there. Verse 17 goes on and says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And Jesus came not to condemn, but to be the sacrifice for us, to give us hope, for for the angst that we just felt and that we, we still feel to provide a way, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's why when it comes to heaven, we believe heaven to be a place, a real place, a reality, a place of eternal conscious reward for people who are found in Christ, for those who are found in Christ. I think Timothy Keller says it really well. He says, this current world is not all there is. Christians will live with and enjoy God forever in the new city, new heaven, and the new earth, where we will be freed from sin and inhabit renewed resurrection bodies in a renewed, restored creation. This is our hope. This is what the word of God says for those who know Jesus. And this is why as believers, we must have an urgency about speaking to people about Jesus, the truth. We must. Culture has done something to us, y'all, where as Christians, because we don't want to push our faith on other people, We silence ourselves. And for many people, when they say push their faith on other people, what they mean by that, what they think that means is just to be very loud and aggressive in what they believe. And that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what the Bible talks about. It's not about ranting and raving. It's about looking at someone for who they are, for who God created them to be, and knowing that God has has put you in their life for the time that he's put you in their life to witness, to love, to be Jesus to them in order for God to be revealed to them. Yes, sometimes through you, through the truth that you speak. Me and my buddies didn't realize that the last year or two that we were who God put in this guy's life to represent Jesus to him. We didn't realize that. And I'm just saying there's people in your life right now you don't, you don't realize that you are potentially, like you are who God is using to reach them. At the very least, to help them see the reality of what we're talking about. Like it's you, there is nobody else. And you can't just like rely on the fact that one day they're gonna come to a church service like there's this and, and hear somebody else teach it. They might have an aversion to a building like this. Like, we are the church. We go. Y'all with me on that? So this urgency, we we need to have this urgency because heaven and hell is a reality. There's a place of eternal union with God, which is heaven, and there's a place of eternal separation from God, which is hell. And Revelation describes heaven, which provides hope for us today. And I want to read it in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth where we're at right now had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And verse 4 that's what we desire. We want every tear wiped away. We want death to be no more. We want the grief and the mourning that we feel for the losses that we've had in our own life. We want that to be removed. We want that weight, that cloud. We want that to be removed. We want the pain that we are experiencing, the pain that we've experienced. We want it to be removed. And the Bible says that that is, that is going to happen, that the former things will pass away, but we're in the present where it hasn't passed away. And so this is one of those messages that is very heavy and, and, and tough, but it has hope, but it doesn't always have hope. It doesn't always ha have hope for all the things that we're in right now. It doesn't have hope necessarily for restoration right now of the losses. That's not what the gospel promises. But the gospel promises that we have a way to be redeemed out of darkness. That we have the choice by God's grace to put our faith and our belief in Christ. To be redeemed out of these things. And to also be commissioned to go and to help others see this. And this is the truth Heaven is, is our home, y'all. Heaven is not right now. God has us here to do a great work in this world. It's not just about heaven in the future, okay? We have work to do now, but at the end of the day, we believe in what Revelations is talking about, right? Let's stand to our feet. I wanna pray for you. Just close your eyes. Don't worry about the people next to you. Just allow the Holy Spirit just to, to speak to you right now. I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of questions, um, even frustration. For some of us, the way that we express our sadness is not through tears, but it's actually through frustration, it's through anger, it's through, uh, it's just different. And God has a way of reaching past all of that. God doesn't get thrown off by your hard questions. God doesn't get thrown off by your anger, by your sadness, by your doubts. The Holy Spirit reaches past those things. So Holy Spirit, we ask you right now in all of our lives, in all of our thoughts to cut through all of that right now. God, we're asking for understanding, for revelation. God, would you help us to believe your word, to read your word, to read it properly, to do our study, to do our research, all these things, but God, that we wouldn't just fall into intellectualism, that God, you would reveal truth to us in our hearts, and God, the things that come up against that, those questions, Lord, that, that those things would not pull us away from you, that we would not be drawn away by empty deceit, by human logic, by human philosophy that, that also is not grounded in Jesus, that is not grounded in your heart, in your nature. God, when it comes to heaven and hell, God, I'm praying that you reveal the reality of heaven and hell to each and every one of us. And that God, today, where there's, there might be great grief for some of us in certain things, that God, you would help us to, to realize the great hope that we have because Jesus was raised to new life. So there is life after this. We believe it. If you're far from God in this place today,
you don't know him, you've been wrestling with whether or not to submit your heart to God and surrender your life to him. It's not some big grandiose thing that, like some ritual that you have to do. It's simply, like the Bible talks about a broken heart, a contrite spirit. God doesn't deny. It's, it's literally just you saying, God, I believe. I give you my life. I surrender my heart. Some of you right now, you're thinking that because of the things that you've been doing wrong that you know are not, not, you know, they're not good, they're sinful acts. You think that you need to get cleaned up and quit doing those things and then come to God. I wanna help you understand right now that it's exactly the opposite. You come to Jesus like the prodigal son. When he came back, he was filthy. And the father put a robe over him and covered that filth, covered that stench, covered that wickedness. And that's what happens whenever we come. We come with our filthy rags. We come with the filth that we have. Our good intentions are even that. And God clothes us in Jesus's righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So right now, just say, Lord, thank you for your righteousness. Clothe me in your righteousness. Forgive me. I repent. I believe in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.